Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello. Today, I'd like to welcome a very special guest to the podcast, Michael Bauer. He is the Director of Sustainability here at Naropa, and he's just also a plainly cool dude. So welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, awesome. So getting started, what inspired you to do the work you're doing? What kind of schooling did you have? What kind of inspirations did you have? And kind of how did you get to Naropa? Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I played cowboys and Indians with my friends. Okay. And I always wanted to be the Indians. That way of life felt true to me. Living in harmony with nature and having a relationship with the elements and with the challenges and resources that were available, more so than coming in and shooting up the saloon. Yeah. <laughs> Just for my for my and that's always resonated with me. Mhm. You know, looking back, I probably had a little noble savagey thing going on as a kid. But, you know, when you're identifying with a particular culture that way without really knowing much about the culture, I think that speaks to a core uh, value that I have, yeah. which is earth-based systems and living in those systems being both trying to kill us in the form of tornadoes and hurricanes and drought, and also giving us everything we need and then some with incredible abundance. That led me into an interest in science. I was really good in biology and I ended up going to see you and studying biology and then sociology at the same okay. time caught my interest. So you started in Boulder like a while ago then? I came to Boulder in 96. Okay, From nice. Illinois, I'm from Indiana. Yeah. And I grew up in Illinois and uh, I wanted to come out West because I love the mountains and I was mm-hmm. interested in Bozeman, yeah. Portland yeah. and Flagstaff, Arizona and Boulder. Okay. I ended up in Boulder in yeah. 96 and studied biology at CU. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Ended up really getting focused on predator prey dynamics. I was really fascinated with mm-hmm. how these top level carnivores survive specifically that they need these large wilderness areas to thrive. Okay. And my mentors at CU, Mark Beckoff, Armstrong, I think his first name's David, mm-hmm. Mike Grant, and some other community organizations showed me how mm-hmm. if we can protect top tier predators, then we can protect large wilderness areas. And that's what we really called to me. If the United States wilderness system and national park system and national forest system are unparalleled globally. Yeah, We have an amazing system here that we need to protect and value. And the question I learned was that, do we have room in our hearts for wilderness areas? As I went into my career at Boulder County Parks and Open Space, I really started to notice and get more concerned about climate change. Okay. And I realized that you know, we could protect wilderness from mining and logging and overuse mm-hmm. and 
create the cultural space in our hearts for that wilderness, but we can't protect it from climate change directly. It has yeah. to be a change in the hearts of people. Yeah. So that got me really paranoid. A change in the hearts and also just a change in the way we function in the world. You know, changing some habits that we might have. Huge. Conditions. Conditioning, yeah. habits, mm-hmm. absolutely. That stuff is massive Yeah, because it adds up exponentially, right? Is this a compounding effect of all these little habits? Mm-hmm. And it may not seem significant to folks, but it really is. It, in fact, it's the duality, which really fits well with Naropa. This duality of mm. both being powerful and powerless. Yeah. That we, one little thing we do doesn't really do much. But mm. if 10 million of us do that one little thing, it's extremely powerful. Yeah. So that's a hard thing to, to hold both of those. So I thought, well, I started thinking about graduate school and what I was good at and how I could affect some positive change around climate. And I was like, law, not really, or policy maybe. And ended up not because I'm a natural engineer, mm-hmm. but I noticed that was the greatest intersection of my interest and ability was engineering, specifically this program at CU called Civil Systems Engineering. Hmm, That's sort of an intersection of environmental, civil, and urban planning to meet these, the greatest challenges of changing climate and urban infrastructure. And specific to that was at CU, there's the Mortensen Center for Engineering for Developing Communities. Okay. And I ended up studying under Professor Bernard Amadei, who founded Engineers Without Borders in 2002. Okay. And through his sustainable community development classes worked on a project in Denver to lower home heating costs using Mm. trash. Basically, we take trash and turn it into health and wealth by building these very low cost solar air heaters, solar furnaces, basically, that work really well. And that was my introduction to humanitarian technology, humanitarian engineering. And that's what sparked in me, you know, this, yes, climate change specifically around how we produce energy, how we get around as as far as transportation is really important, but it's really rooted in humanity. Yeah, And that's that, that was a shift in me around the service profession of engineering. If we can root this in humanity, because who gets hit first and hardest by climate change? It's the people in the marginalized communities. And they've always been the first and heaviest victims of mm-hmm. pollution, yeah. environmental racism. A lack of ecological justice always hits those folks first. And I saw that firsthand in in West Denver. That was really inspiring and motivating to me to get more clear about how we develop our systems to function really well for everyone, not just engineering for the 1%. Yeah. So, But engineering for the whole humanity. Yeah. And engineering for the people who are hit hardest the most, starting there to fix the problem and then moving on. That's right. Yeah, because the type of engineering you're talking about is affecting everyone, but in a positive manner. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. That's the idea. <laughs> I, I thought we I had some. So. Yeah, that was. I thought we had some good successes in Denver. I mean, we put in. Nice. More, we installed these four different units. We had these mm-hmm. prototypes that we went down there. We worked with a community. We worked with a great community organization yeah. called Revision. Okay. They're primarily a food security nonprofit. Mm-hmm. They do great work. Revision.org. But they also saw these other needs that weren't being met in the community. And we partnered with them, nice. our class at CU, with also the business school at CU, and then Revision to do a community appraisal. So we do participatory appraisal, meaning you have to have social skin in the game. You have to have folks that are basically, you want their input, right? Yeah. The old model of development was 
Westerners come in and say, here's our solution to your problems. Use this and you'll be fine. And they're, they're going, wait a minute, actually, that wasn't the problem we wanted to solve. Yeah. You know, and here we are, you know, 70 or years. Or you're using resources that don't exist in the place that we're trying to do this work in. And or it's not serving the people. You're not, you need the feedback of the people who are being affected by the thing you're trying to fix. That's well so, said. Yeah. No doubt. Without a doubt. Because any project in those communities that doesn't do that is so much more likely to fail. In fact, they do. I mean, yeah. there's there's over 25,000 failed water supply systems projects across Africa right now. What? According, wow. to, according to Ned Breslin, the CEO of Water for People, yeah. at a cost of over $1.2 a lost investment. And of course, water, yeah. water development systems aren't the only... Uh, humanitarian projects, so the losses are even greater. Yeah. So these are largely due to failure to address sustainability mm-hmm. problems in the field around cultural sustainability. Yeah, yeah. So I'm hearing this narrative of you finding yourself, finding the work you want to do, and you crystallizing it into something. So once that started happening, you started doing all these projects in Denver, you were getting a degree from CU. How did you end up at Naropa? Mm-hmm. So what did that journey look like? When I was getting my degree, I was scared. I didn't know <laughs> how oh, I was going to apply hey, this. That was probably just you. Everyone feels fine. Yeah. They get their degree. Right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have a bachelor's in engineering. I didn't have, yeah. I was looking at all my peers who had all this experience <laughs> with these like firms and stuff. And I, here I am with my biology and sociology degrees. Uh-huh. And so I was really interested in affecting organizational change, specifically around climate neutrality or ecological justice. And I found out about this concept of uh, sustainability coordinators. So I started meeting with some and talking to them. I actually had worked with one at Boulder County, okay. Susie Strife at Boulder County, when I worked for Boulder County Open Space. Nice. And I thought that would be a really powerful way to take what I've learned mm. and serve the community in this way yeah. to affect positive change around climate and culture and bring services to folks that have the most need of them. In the meantime, I was teaching engineering at Metro State University in Denver. I taught there for three and a half years, and they saw my background in community development and sustainable systems and invited me to help them develop their new curriculum called Sustainable Systems Engineering, and they have a degree in that oh, now. Cool. So I helped develop that. Very cool. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Really smart, capable folks down there. Metro has the highest Latino graduation rate of any of the state schools, the highest pioneer yeah. college student rate of any of the state schools. Yeah. It's the smallest of the state schools. Wow. And uh, I really enjoyed working there. But while I was there, I was applying for work in this area that I wanted to okay. uh, really start working in. At the same time, I really started about five years ago doing really more intensive personal work, mm-hmm. contemplative work around relationship dynamics with my wife and my family, mm-hmm. clearing up blockages in my own life around mm-hmm. things that I thought were limiting me yeah. by working with folks like Tori Capron and Bruce Tift. Mm-hmm. And then I found a man by the name of Ravain Bacall who runs, he does couples counseling and also personal life coaching, but he, he graduated from Naropa. He worked here for a number of hey. years. Yeah. Shout out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> cool. And uh, he turned me onto this idea of the men's groups. Mm. I was like, what's that? <laughs> I don't know what that is. Is that? I remember from the 90s, folks like Robert Bly and uh, Joseph Campbell, but this was something different. It's a little different. So I had been doing this contemplative work. I studied a couple of different traditions, Qigong and Tai Chi and Kung Fu, but, and now I'd started been introduced to Ravain's tradition, which is 
he's been working with the, which is actually the Cheyenne tradition. He's been studying for several years, but in this men's group work, we really don't talk about the Cheyenne lineage very much, but he's lived in Israel to study the Torah. He came to Boulder to study at Naropa and he's on a spiritual path Yeah, and he has opened up a lot of uh, ideas to me. Mm-hmm. So when the job for Naropa opened up, I had had this work they they wanted specific skill set around sustainability and around contemplative work mm-hmm. and i happened to have be fortunate enough to have done that work at that point and when nice. i applied i was uh given <laughs> the opportunity to you were just uh, ready to join to the team i was ready yeah awesome very cool so i feel like there's a generic understanding of what sustainability is and I'd love for you to unpack that for us, maybe in your version. Like, what does sustainability mean to you? What does sustainability mean to your work? Mm-hmm. And what do you think sustainability means to the general public? Like, yeah. How would you define that? It's a good question. I see this the general public, let's say your average person who's not necessarily working in this field, sees sustainability mm-hmm. as solar panels, electric cars, Banning plastic straws, recycling, recycling, compost, and compost. Yeah, yeah organic food, things mm-hmm. like that, which are all very important. Totally. Yeah, and it's extremely narrow band of what sustainability is. Mm-hmm. The the classic definition of sustainability comes from this, what they call the Brundtland Commission of 1987 at the UN, which defines sustainable development as development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the needs of future generations. Love that. Yeah. Okay. It's really succinct. There's this concept also of the triple bottom line of sustainability, which folks call ecology, economy, and society, or people, mm. planet, and profits. Yeah. But lately, the Wait, past- that's set up differently than most companies. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, right. Where they put profits at the top. I see what you're doing here. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay. And there's some wonderful corporations that work yeah. that way, like Patagonia, mm-hmm. Sounds True here in Boulder. Yeah. Um, Morningstar out in California. But lately, the past five years or so, there's this this idea of the quadruple bottom line. Uh oh. Which is an we extra got, bottom we got line. An extra bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We got to focus on this yeah. one. And I've come the past two years to shift around to think that that fourth one is actually the first one, the most important mm. one. And that's what is called either personal or purpose sustainability. Yeah. And here's what I mean by that, David. If I don't know what my values are, and I'm not living, if even if I do, if I'm not living in those highest values, and I'm not living in a way that I can sustain in my life, there's really very little chance that I'm going to have the bandwidth to consider recycling, pollution, climate change, financial sustainability, economic sustainability, Mm -hmm. because I don't live sustainably personally for me, even if I don't have as one of my values, sustainability or climate change. Even if my highest values maybe are family, integrity, and art, maybe those are my top three values in my life that I've Mm -hmm. identified. I can still live in a way that affects positive change around the climate if I'm living in all of my highest values and living in my purpose sustainably for me, where I'm not burning out, I'm not going in a direction that's not sustainable, because then I can consider maybe, because I've got the bandwidth, what's my impact on the climate and how does that address my highest values? If the climate shifts so much that the economy is disrupted terribly, Mm -hmm. then my family's gonna be affected, my art's gonna be affected. Definitely. So that personal sustainability is the most important one. And that's how we root it in humanity. 
Yeah, and if you are personally sustainable, then you are able to show up with the greater sustainability idea too. And it's interesting because you were saying something about the like hierarchies, and you're adding another bottom line to the the bottom of the line. <laughs> but I almost thought about like instead of it being a hierarchy, it's a higher parallel. So they're all important equally. I mean, maybe there is a hierarchy, hierarchical mm. type of thing happening, but at the same time, like all of these should be viewed as important and must do's in consumer-based companies. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, we do live in a highly consumerist society. And that's not going to shift. That's but what g- we do need to shift is how we do that. I agree. And yeah. that's like you're saying, I mean, that's well said. That's where the personal sustainability comes in. Yeah. Like if I'll, a CEO had a sustainable practice in their personal life and then they show up in their business life in that same way. Yeah, right? I mean, like, That's a great example. Yeah. I've seen it drawn as, in a little graphic, as concentric circles mm. with personal at the center and then the ecology or the environment being the outermost one that holds everything because our natural systems, our life support systems, our life-giving systems allow all of this to be possible. There's yeah. nothing that we've created yeah. around us that doesn't come from the earth. Yep. Even the most exotic synthetic materials still come from what we have available. Mm-hmm. And that supports everything, including our economy, which supports our society, yeah. or our society supports our economy. Those two, are, I think, can be more fluid. Yeah. But at the heart of it is, is the personal. And if I'm not living in a way that if I'm burned out, if I'm stressed, if I've got all these roadblocks and I've got unmetabolized anger and fear and yeah. resentment, I'm going to show up in my life that way. Yeah. I, I'm going to manifest things in my life that are going to point me towards fear and resentment and bitterness. I can speak from experience, uh-huh. you know, having lived that way for much of my life when I was a young man. Yeah. Younger man, let's say. Okay. <laughs> So there's no judgment there. I just think this is the evidence that I've seen over time. You don't want to be a curmudgeon. <laughs> no. You know, like yeah. it's not fun. <laughs> no. Like let's develop as human beings. That sounds really exciting to me. It sounds exciting to me too, but so many people yeah. are afraid of that. They're and fr- that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you're doing it. And so many people are so afraid of, mm. myself included, looking at the shadow you know, the, in this men's work, there's a piece that's really important around masculinity. And we talk yeah. about the integration of masculinity and femininity and the masculine and feminine are actually not separable. You mm. can't have one without the other. This is my bias. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. We all have each of them in us. Yeah. You know, folks with a more masculine core, whether they be men or women, mm-hmm. statistically, it tends to be more men that have a masculine core tends to be more women than have a more feminine core, but that's innumerable, infinite variations between, of course. Yeah, yeah, it's all mildly fluid. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We talk about masculinity and how the shadow masculine has been dominant for the past, let's say, three or 4,000 years. Yeah, Um, I I really like hearing that, the shadow masculinity. mm -hmm. Because if masculinity was running, or not running, but like assisting in the cooperation of both energies, mm-hmm. I feel like the masculine energy would be propelling the female energy to rise. I agree. And th- I feel like that's what we need right now. It's a rise of female femininity energy into our societies, into our psyches, into our ways of living, connecting with the earth, the mama. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the earth is essentially feminine energy and we need a, a balance of both masculine yeah. and feminine. We need to lead with masculine at times and we need to, as people, as individual and lead with feminine at other times. But mm -hmm. the earth system is essentially a feminine energy. Yeah. And my bias is I don't talk about toxic masculinity because a toxin is something that you want to get rid of that is to be avoided, that's to be mm. neutralized. Compost. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I talk about it as a shadow because mm. the shadow masculine is something that's right there all the time that you want to know where it is and keep close so yeah. you keep aware of when that overt aggression dominating behavior, mm -hmm. destroying behavior comes in for all of us. And we all have that in us. Yeah. Rather than trying to ignore it and get rid of it, we keep it close and know yeah. and get to know it. And eventually as you get to know it, integrate it so you can use it skillfully. Yeah, I really like hearing that. And I feel like that's something that could be met at all levels, whether it's emotional, whether it's in relationship, whether it's in any sort of way it shows up in your life not pushing it away because if you push a shadow away it's just it's not going to go away it's no. just part of being it's, it's part, part of, of becoming mm. and it's a really potent learning tool if you are skillful enough to use a lens that is clear enough to see what's going on over there mm. and i and i just really appreciate you voicing that because we're not going to push it away if anything we got to like put our arms around it and be mm -hmm. like you're welcome mm -hmm. but thank you for showing me what i need to work on that's right so switching gears, I'm curious, okay. what is Naropa doing to be sustainable? Mm. And then let's dive into that a bit. And then I'm also curious, what are some future goals and or like what do you have in mind? You know, you've been here for almost a year now and mm -hmm. we've seen you just like hit the ground running. You know, like I, I remember meeting you one of the first days that you came here and you were just so exciting, so amped and just ready to go. And I'm like, damn, this guy's going to do it. And I'm just curious, like, what are we doing now? What are we going to do in the future? And uh, what are you excited about? I'd like to emphasize. That's a big one. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, it's particularly <laughs> meaningful for me to be here at Naropa, mm -hmm. which has been a first adopter of and a strong promoter of sustainability for 20 years or more. We were the first university in the country to purchase 100% renewable energy credits to, for our electricity usage. Yeah, and that's the wind power. That's right. right? That's the XL's wind source yeah. project. The first university in the country to divest our investments from fossil fuel companies mm -hmm. four years before the state of New York did it. Yeah. And we've had the zero waste program in place for over 10 years, mm -hmm. actually over 15 years. And I particularly want to emphasize the importance of shared values and yeah. common policies as yeah. a basis for deep community resilience, mm -hmm. which is important to co-create a framework around what we wanna build. But mm -hmm. those efforts that I just mentioned don't replace the specificity and detail of existing strategic objectives here. So you asked about what we're doing. We've got a climate action plan that was really skillfully and strongly addressed in 2012 and 13 mm -hmm. that says that we want to be carbon neutral by 2040, meaning folks driving in from around the area to work here. Mm -hmm. So their, their vehicle emissions, as well as our buildings, heating and, and cooling and lighting our buildings. Yeah. All the travel that takes place for folks that travel around the country. I think we can do it by 2030, uh, 2030, 2035. We want to increase yeah. our waste. Yeah. Let's do it. I think we can. <laughs> we actually, David, we are really fortunate to live in a state that has really strong incentives to do that in Colorado. Are, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So that helps. 
right now we we divert over 80% of our waste from landfills and it gets recycled or composted. Mm-hmm. We can bump that up to 97% by 2040. We can do that sooner than that. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. We have low flow faucets on almost all of our sinks campus wide, reducing our water footprint. Mm -hmm. We're doing sprinkler audits for our landscaping. Nice. Speaking of the grounds, we don't use any pesticides, any herbicides, any fungicides, any, no sides. A side is something that kills. That's the root word there. Interesting. Yeah. It doesn't need it and we don't use it, which is really, I love that. And what's interesting is our grounds are beautiful beautiful they're yeah. so they're well maintained they look beautiful and they're you can just like lay in the grass and chill <laughs> yeah you really can yeah and you don't have to worry about what was yeah and my there's God, it, what was I, what am i laying in and if yeah. you do come to our campus there's little secrets of like flowers and sage and lemon balm and rose hips there's you can like kind of create a lasagna or a meal <laughs> just walking around campus just picking what you can see you're not exaggerating no. really i mean like the students in fact <laughs> Faculty and staff. It. Yeah. Have you, you made oh, lasagna? Yeah. Yeah. Take that stuff home yeah. and cook yeah. some good food. You can walk around. There's edible food forests around the Snow Lion apartments around the Arapaho yep. campus. So you can walk around and eat plums, peaches, onion, spinach, mm-hmm. pears, yep. apples, lemon balm, like you said, sage, mm-hmm. comfrey, nettle, all this stuff. It's all yeah. around campus. Yeah. It's wonderful. And so I really give a shout out and a huge kudos to grounds and facilities maintenance yep. uh, for taking care of this stuff and the different classes and the students who have made this possible mm-hmm. through their efforts. Yeah, they really do a great job. And so, I mean, we have zero waste stations yeah. for composting, recycling, and trashing all throughout all the campuses, inside and outside. Mm-hmm. We give every student, faculty, and staff free RTD EcoPass bus passes. Yep, everyone gets a bus pass. Everyone gets a bus pass. Everyone gets a B-cycle, bike sharing pass, unlimited one-hour rides. We, if you, if riding a bike isn't your thing and you need a car, we have a discounted car share agreement with Ego Car Share. Yeah. We provide, and this is one of my favorites, in the sustainability program we have the Bike Shack. And I the, like the Bike Shack. The Bike Shack is yeah. amazing. It's our first student-led project here at Naropa, student-run that's still going. Mm-hmm. Student-led, student-run, totally student-facilitated yep. bike maintenance garage, basically. You can show up with your bike and get free maintenance Yep. and learn how to do this stuff yourself. Low-cost replacement of parts, mm-hmm. and you can call and get custom-guided assistance on working on your bike yeah and if you want you can build your own bike from donated parts we have a ton of donated bikes out there of donated bikes (laughs) people you can come build your own bike (laughs) and take it away for free so you learn how to build a bike and you get a free bike out of it sustainable totally sustainable and boulder is extremely bike friendly it's amazing how easy it is to get anywhere on a bike it's probably faster on a bike it's just beautiful here so who doesn't want to ride the creek it's amazing go to work some of the bike paths are even plowed in the winter before the streets are plowed. <laughs> you know, David, they actually do I this commuter challenge every year. I don't know if they still do it. Commuter but they, challenge. They used to do this commuter okay, challenge where bring it on. the city, it was yeah. either the city and the county or the, just the city and a couple of nonprofits would get together and they would race this route around town. <laughs> You'd have to go to the bank, get groceries and do one other thing. I can't remember. Okay. And then one person would drive, one person would 
take the bus and one person would cycle. Oh. And it was oftentimes the person on the bike would win. Yep. The person driving would win as well. But it was it was close between cycling and driving. You should manage stress levels too because who right. wins that one? Well, that's the thing. You know, you got the wind in your hair, you got the music earbuds in and you're yeah. just cruising. Not parking it. You don't have to worry about parking, yeah. paying for parking. <laughs> And you're more connected yeah. with the elements, with yourself, yeah. you're getting your body free, you know, exercise, going mm-hmm. place to place. That's really nice. That's amazing. I never heard about that, but I can see how that's potent. Yeah. So Mo- moving to Boulder for me was like quite an experience. I actually came from Los Angeles. Like I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I grew up in traffic, you yeah. could say, like uh, yeah. two hours driving like 10 miles crazy stuff 405 101 freeway and i moved to boulder i live about like a song and a half itunes away from campus i've been walking to work for the last eight years and wow i feel such a difference to not be in a car how much is that worth you know (laughs) to you it's so valuable so Mm -hmm. valuable Mm -hmm. i think we talked about the sustainability being rooted in humanity that's the most important part for me but even more than this, if I could just say one more thing about Please. what we're doing, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> this part. I haven't noticed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this part, especially uh-huh. our director for the Office for Inclusive Community, Regina Smith. Yes. Myself, our director for contemplative practices, Jovanina mm-hmm. Jobson. Yep. Some of the psychology faculty, Mickey Fire and Travis Cox, mm-hmm. and then the senior environmental planner from the city of Boulder. Mm. We've gotten together and have already started meeting about how to build a new model for deep community resilience. Yeah. Because traditional sustainability practices are actually not enough anymore. Mm -hmm. We view the tools of self-investigation, sustainability science, social justice objectives are all equal instruments for addressing human suffering. And from this understanding, we're right now, we're doing some grant writing and some brainstorming around building the foundations needed to co-create the framework for a new deep community resilience initiative that integrates Mm. sustainability, contemplative practice, and social justice objectives with our psychology initiatives, specifically around self-care and compassion that is rooted in... Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche's work, the Sadhana of Mahmudra. Yeah. So we've begun planning how this will develop. We believe this will produce new and necessary tools for cultural transformation around new classes, new programs, around basically we view right now our one of our biggest challenges in society is the collective denial and anger and externalized anger around our current situation that we've created. Yeah. And and you can see this as the pervasive context of public discourse, specifically mm. on social media, you know, look at what the president does on Twitter. Uh, no responsibility for his actions and externalized anger. And you know, we're all liable to do that to some degree. Yeah. So, so working on addressing our own personal suffering with self-love, self-care and compassion and integrating that with social justice objectives, sustainability objectives, to develop a new model for community resilience to meet the world as it is, which is this new climate reality that we're living in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. It it almost seems as though sustainability starts with self. 
than like your concentric circles like you're mm-hmm. talking about and like recycling is cool and composting and being environmentally friendly is amazing and you should always do that but also there's in energetic composting that needs to happen there's sustainability within oneself and then the collective of those you know like becoming a better human is never going to suck <laughs> yeah right it's never going to so, suck so so i encourage mm. that and mm-hmm. i welcome that and mm-hmm. then i oh my god this plant like you're giving me chills over Good. here i'm I, digging this I, yeah we have just we have a little bit of time left and okay. i and i want to ask you What is the connection between social justice and ecological justice? You're Mm -hmm. tapping into this a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I'm curious, can you dive into that a little bit more? Like, what Mm -hmm. would that look like, the cooperation, the relationship between those two? Yeah. Because they're not separate, ultimately. That's right. My my third podcast I ever did with with Janine Canty, and she addressed this, and she was like, social justice Mm -hmm. is ecological justice. And Mm -hmm. that woman gave me chills, and I I just like bowed to her. I was like, Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. So can you speak about that? Yeah. Janine is masterful in this area. This is her wheelhouse. And she, I consider her uh, a mentor and someone to learn from. You're absolutely right. They're, they're not separable. And the way that I build the architecture for the office for sustainability is around self-care and self-love. And then extending that out to our immediate orbit of folks we care about and then maybe even to strangers and then out even further to life support systems and life-giving systems. Once we can do that, then we've got the compassion to tap into the empathy of those folks over there that are suffering Mm -hmm. that maybe because of my own suffering and my own blinders or maybe even my own uh, willful ignorance and even greed, I don't want to see the suffering of those people. So starting from that center... Or just protecting yourself. You're just like, protecting yourself. I don't know yourself. if I, I can take this on. That's That would send me over the edge. Yeah. If I take on that starving no child. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of pain to go around there for folks that are suffering. As I said before, you know, pollution, climate change affects these marginalized communities first and hardest. Yes. So that's a really clear line of where social justice and ecological justice are exactly the same. But I totally agree with Janine that they're not separable. If we look at climate change first, when the sea levels rise, these coastal communities, these, let's call them artisanal fishing fishing communities in lowland coastal areas, yeah. they're going to get flooded out. What are they going to do? They don't have the money to relocate. If your local economy gets disrupted because of climate change and you're living paycheck to paycheck or you're you know, mm-hmm. working class or working poor, mm-hmm. you don't have the resources to do anything about that. Yeah. So climate justice, therefore, is is social justice. Ecological justice is Ooh. social justice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You don't necessarily hear that very often unless mm-hmm. you're in deep educational facilities mm-hmm. or with talking with extremely mindful people. And it's just so beautiful to have that reminder that everything is connected. Everything we do, whether it's a thought or an action, internal, external, it is affecting something at some level. And if you start with truth and love and responsibility and authenticity, then everything you're putting out and putting in is going to be somewhat compostable mm. and it is going to be beneficial for yourself. So it's it just feels so good to hear this movement happening that should have been, we need to get this thing going. Yep. You know, it, We need that exponential kick in. I mean, I feel like I've talked with, some other faculty about this. If we're serious about sustainability and climate change, we should be 
gathered in the streets shouting at the top of our lungs, stop, we have to stop this right now. Yeah. But there's other ways we can do collective action that are productive. And I like what yeah. you said about <clears throat> responsibility because there's something to be said, of course, for freedom and rights. But if we then don't take those freedoms and rights and identify what our values are and then take on the responsibility as humans to do something about it, yep. then I don't know what you would call that, but you're not actually... It's neglect. There's some neglect there. Yeah. I, and it's, again, I don't, I don't mean going out and having like this amazing two million person march in Washington, which would yeah. be wonderful, but starting with the responsibility to take care of your own, our own stuff personally. Yeah. I can also see like a movement starting and not just like people telling people to stop, but a movement of people telling people to start. Mm. So let's start doing this instead of saying like, stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Let's start doing this, like mm-hmm. doing the work, being like, all right, well, if you ain't going to do it, I got this. And I got a community behind me. We got the community gardens. We got we got shared space. We got conversations. We got the movement moving. Mm-hmm. Other than just saying like, let's tell them to stop, which we should also do. There's a diversity of play that we need to find. Well, when I say stop, what I, I want to be clear about, I mean, let's stop these systems the way they're going. Yeah. Not like, hey, you over there, stop doing what you're doing. But the systems, the direction they're going need to stop. Yeah. And we're starting to shift those. But the thing about systems, though, is they have momentum. They don't just turn yeah. on a dime. Mm-hmm. You think about the global energy system, there's all these oil <laughs> tankers and oil fields and coal mines. We can't yeah. just like change those overnight. Yeah, the, there's a lot of momentum there. The people benefiting are going to do what they can to make it not. There's you a bet. There's a fun idea that Terrence McKenna talks about, who's one of my faves. Yeah. He talks about turning a battleship with an oar. <laughs> How you could do that? That's really <laughs> yeah. hard. That's and really that's, hard. That's kind of what it feels like. Mm. But if you get a couple million ores, it's probably possible. That's right. You know, let's go get that. That's that powerful, powerless thing again, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Like this one ore sucks on this battleship. I can't do anything. Oh, you other 50,000 people have ores? Wait a minute. We got something here. Yeah. We can actually affect some change here. Awesome. And what's not being reported in most mainstream media, although a little bit, but mostly not, is a lot of folks don't realize how much movement this movement has for ecological and social justice. There's hundreds of millions yeah. of people around the world yeah. that are collectively working towards this. It's easier to get a little hopeless and downtrodden when you're doing your thing, you're working hard to clean up your own personal stuff and maybe do some stuff over here to serve yeah. your community. And you go, I'm just doing my thing. Nobody's like, what's everybody doing? Just keep remembering, stay plugged in that folks are doing this all around the world all the time. And there's a a, a global movement. There are people out there who have dedicated their lives into making this world a better place in so many different levels. Mm -hmm. And I'm with that. Let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. I'm on your team. (laughs) You know, put put me in, coach. (laughs) Come on, let's got it. I got it all day. So... Wow. So very interesting stuff. We could probably just keep going, but that is our time. And it was just such a pleasure to speak with you. Just uh, people can't see you, but they can hear you. But what they don't see is just your enthusiasm, your excitement, your your willingness to step forward into something. And it feels really good to have you on the team at Naropa to be our sustainability director. I'm just excited for the future, you know, excited to see what happens. So Thanks, brother. It's such a privilege and an honor to be here and to, to serve my community. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. So I'd like to thank Michael Bauer for speaking with us on the podcast today. He is a sustainability director here at Naropa. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.